Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live Multispeed Technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call, 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624 or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalaya. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off this hour. You cannot put technology back into a bottle any more than you can put a genie back into a bottle. And that's something that I feel like is worth pointing out. Because over the last week, I obviously have completed Snowden's book, Fantastic Read. If you haven't read Permanent Record, I highly recommend you check that out. Every person who considers themselves to be involved in any or using or maintaining technology needs to read this book absolutely has to read this book because it will give you a level of insight that you didn't previously have. What I'm seeing as the backlash from this book though, surprises me almost as much as the people that are uninterested in reclaiming their privacy. And I say that the backlash surprises me because people seem to be losing their mind. I've watched Facebook post after Facebook post or Twitter post after Twitter post or Reddit post after Reddit post from people that cannot seem to express their frustration enough. And what I would say to you, if you're one of those people that read Snowden's book or are concerned about data privacy, you should understand that you should never have been trusting laws and governments to keep your privacy safe to begin with. You cannot put technology back into the box. If surveillance technology exists and is being used by the Chinese government or the Russian government, which is how Snowden claims that he first became aware of this existence of technology and then looked to see if the U.S. was doing it to begin with. If that technology already existed in those other countries, even if we lived in a country that had laws that respected privacy, we still should try to further the advent of this technology. And it should be an ongoing process, and it should be something that we as individuals seek as our own responsibility to use the technology that we use. I would invite you to just look at the NSA and any government and any bad actor from this point forward as just a really good 10 tester, testing your code, knocking on the doors, finding the problems. Now, obviously, they're not going to call them out when they find them. They're not going to go through a responsible disclosure process. They're just going to utilize it to their own end. But nevertheless, they are a pen tester, and they are bettering the environment that we have. We'll go to the phones, 855-450-NOAH. It's 855-450-6624. You're on Ask Noah. Good evening. Hey, Noah. It's Chaz from upstate New York. How you doing? Hey, Chaz. Welcome into the program. Long time no here. How have you been? Yeah, not too bad. Uh, just surviving and things like that. Um, I had a bit of a question about owning your own technology, and I hear that the Ask Noah show is a place to talk about those. We things. tend to talk about that from time to time, yes. All right. So I've actually gone back to buying Blu-ray discs again, as opposed to just digital copies of movies, because uh, 
actually because of this whole thing where Netflix lost the office and now I'm not sure if it's going to be anywhere but NBC's private streaming. Anyway, beyond the point. Um, so you've talked about uh, using Make MKV to get videos off of Blu-ray discs from the past. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm actually pretty good at doing that and figuring out what is uh, what, what you actually need for the movie and what's the French language subtitles and things like that. <laughs> where I'm running into problems is the second step where I use Handbrake to try to get the file size down a little bit. This is all going on a two terabyte external that's plugged into my uh, router and then picked up from Cody. Gotcha. So I do have to kind of get the final size down from the initial 30 gigs a little bit. Um, and I'm running into two problems. One, um, having a hard time finding the sweet spot of you know, visual quality and file size. Um, and two, seems like whenever I run handbrake, it uh, kicks my CPU load up to 100%, which yep. I would kind of like to avoid because, well, and can't, that can't be good for a CPU long term. So, so here- any ideas how to find the right spot for that and uh, keep my CPU manageable? Yeah, it, the the answer there is obviously you can, you could go through and go through some of the presets of Handbrake. You could also tweak them to kind of adjust your own. What I would suggest you do is I have an FFmpeg script. And if you're not familiar with I'm, I'm sure you are, but if you if if a person is not familiar with FFmpeg, what it is is effectively a very powerful media suite software that allows you to do a number of different complicated and very complex video transcoding and converting operations. In fact, it is FFmpeg that Handbrake is using underneath to make the changes that Handbrake is making, if I'm not mistaken. And so uh, there are you can leverage FFmpeg if you just know the right incantations to put in there. Now, I have a two-pass encoding script, and what a two-pass encoding script means is that it actually runs twice. And... Um, and and what I think the quality that it outputs is the perfect balance between a full quality Blu-ray rip, which, by the way, if anybody out there is wondering, is always my first preference to have that archival style, full, uncompressed uh, copy of the original media, right? Because once you throw those bits away, there's no getting them back. And so if that was an option, that would be my first choice. But in light of you saying, oh, I need to store it on a two terabyte hard drive. And I as well have a small little portable hard drive that I store media on that I take with me. Um, in that event, what I would suggest you use is this FFmpeg script and it will, uh, it'll cut down quite significantly the file and it'll get maybe an hour or two hour file down to, I don't know, maybe just under a gig. And so it's a pretty significant reduction in size. And yet the, it's, it's to me anyway, and I'm pretty sensitive to, the loss of picture quality or audio quality to me, it looks very, very good. And so what I'll do is I will include that encoding script for you in the show notes at podcast.asnoahshow.com. You can check it out and give that a whirl. And then if it doesn't work or if you're not happy with it, give me a call back and let me know why. Perfect. Thank you so much. I will test it with it's the great pumpkin, Charlie Brown, when I get home from work. <laughs> I appreciate the call, Chaz. 855-450-NOAH. That's one 855 4506 The email live at com. Last week, we talked about Edward Snowden's book, Permanent Record. And it's nothing that we haven't talked about on this show since basically episode one. I have been telling you, I've been, I've had a very consistent message. You need to own your own technology. You need to know where your data is stored. You need to be paying attention to it. You need to manage it, and you need to pay for it and not in in your privacy with actual dollars. Sometimes 
taking ownership of your privacy is going to cost you a little bit of money. This week, what we're going to do is give you a step-by-step breakdown on the tools and techniques that you need to follow all of the examples that Edward Snowden has laid out. He gives some keen insight into his book as to the kind of capabilities that the technology that the NSA had access to six, seven years ago. And he gives some insight into the way that he was able to circumvent them. Now, if it works for an NSA spy and the technologies and tricks that he was using, he was able to circumvent the government. You should be able to circumvent the average bad actor who is not going to apply nearly the level of scrutiny to your system as probably would have been applied to his had he gotten caught. The key to everything, the key to privacy is encryption. Everything we talk about from this point on will have something to do with encryption because it's the one technical innovation. It is the one technical truth that the government and any bad actor is unable to break because it's mathematically sound and people have spent, well, the NSA spent $10 million trying to break RSA. And so that's what they had to pay for a backdoor. So that just gives you some insight into the level of safety that encryption offers you. And what's interesting about encryption is it doesn't necessarily have to be some large organization. One of the things that Edward Snowden points out in his book is that he was previously using a very complex process to be able to complete basic Google searches without them being attributed back to the intelligence agencies. And he points out that Tor, a free and open source project, will offer the same anonymous browsing at a fraction of the cost. So you can use tools and you can utilize encryption and you can use these free and open source tools that are available to you to enhance your privacy, to secure yourself without costing you a lot of money. It just takes a little bit of know-how. And so that's what we want to spend the episode doing tonight. Privacy by its nature is very inconvenient. The more private you want to be, the more inconvenience you have to tolerate. And you, the individual, are going to have to make the decision of how much privacy you really want to give up, and you have to make the decision how much time and effort you want to put into this. I'll give you a perfect example. I put little to no effort whatsoever into the quote-unquote privacy of doing show prep for Ask Noah. I don't feel the need to, to, to use any sort of privacy tools to compose my show notes because at the end of the day, I'm going to publish them at podcast.asknoahshow.com anyway. I don't care. It's not worth any inconvenience. So in that circumstance, the most convenient route is the route I'm going to take. Everything else, though, pictures of my kids, pictures of my family, uh, location data, things that I am working on that I'm not planning on publishing on the internet, all of those things are done with privacy in mind. And yes, there is a certain inconvenience factor that follows. Now, I said this on last week's episode. I'll repeat it. For technology to be successful, I personally believe for it to be accepted by the mainstream and to be successful, we have to find a balance between convenience and privacy. And things like Signal do a great job of that because the average person that uses Signal, all they have to remember is I just have to download an app. They don't have to pay attention to... How do I generate a private key and a public key and keep the private key private and the public key has to be sent to all these? They don't have to worry about any of that. They just install the app. They take a picture of the QR code with a friend. 
and all of a sudden the encryption is handled for them like magic. That's where we have to get if we want this to be adopted by mainstream. But you, if you're listening to this show, have a keen insight into technology. And you, if you're listening to the show, will have all of the tools by the time we conclude tonight to be able to live a completely private life should you choose to. Snowden does a great job at outlining his process and a process that he used and the things that he thinks that everybody should use. And I have taken that as well as various different interviews that he has done, as well as some of the other tools that I have come into contact with. And I've compiled this list for myself. So for the purposes that we're going to use here tonight, I am going to use Edward Snowden's laptop model so that we can understand where all of these software packages fit in. Because again, it depends on how much privacy your circumstance requires, and it depends on how much inconvenience you're willing to put up. There's no point in using anonymizing services, for example, if you're going to sign into your Facebook account and give the connection away as an identification anyway, right? So there's no point in using hard drive encryption if you're going to boot your laptop up, decrypt your hard drive, and then leave it sitting out in your office for all of your friends to access, right? There are certain things that you need to do, certain practices that you need to become aware of to effectively use privacy and security technology. And I recognize that we live in 2019. And so living in a Faraday cage in the middle of Montana probably is not realistic for most people. And so we have to find a balance. So let's start with this. Things that everybody can and should do. Every website you visit should be on HTTPS. Every single website should be using SSL. Now, is SSL broken? Yes, TLS is broken. Is SSL better than nothing? Yes, SSL is better than nothing, particularly as it relates to bad actors and not the government per se, but just other attackers. Is it expensive to use HTTPS? No. In fact, we have a tutorial out. If you go to youtube.com slash Media, there is a tutorial for Let's Encrypt, and it will walk you step by step up on how you can get your web server running with an encrypted connection without spending any money. And it will just automatically renew every 30 days because we give you the script on exactly how to automate that process. If all sites were using HTTPS, at least the actors won't know what's contained inside of the data that you're sending to those sites. Let me explain. If I send an email and it is working over HTTPS, a bad actor is going to be able to see that my computer is communicating with, let's just say I'm using Google. They're going to know that my com computer is communicating with Google because obviously the packet headers can't be encrypted. And so the destination and source addresses are going to be visible. However, the contents of that packet, the contents of the email will at least be hidden from anybody who can't break SSL. And so it offers us a step in the right direction. Every site that you visit should be on HTTPS. And if it's a site where you're going to enter in financial details, credit card details, you absolutely have to have SSL in place or you're really setting yourself up for a, for a problem. Snowden had four laptops, a normal laptop, a secure laptop, a decoy, and an air gap. Now, let's disregard the decoy for just a moment as his threat vector obviously was great, much greater than the vast majority of us. 
right? And so his threat environment dictated that he took a couple extra steps. So I'm just going to ignore the decoy laptop. First of all, he doesn't give a lot of detail into what made a decoy laptop a decoy laptop. But second of all, and more importantly, I would argue that it probably doesn't apply to most of us and most of us aren't going to carry a decoy laptop around. Let's concentrate on the other three, the normal laptop, secure communications, and the air gap. Things that all laptops should have, regardless of what they're doing, is you should pick a model, a make and model, that you like and you trust and you can rely on. Because there's nothing more frustrating than buying a $120 machine from Best Buy because it was inexpensive and bringing it home to use as whatever machine you want it to stand in for. And then you never actually use it because it's such a terrible machine and works so horribly that you you just choose not to use it. And so for my de facto choice, when I need a spare laptop for something, when I need to dedicate a laptop for something and I don't want to spend $1,000, but I want a good high quality laptop, I buy ThinkPad T430Ss. I like the S because it's a, they're a little bit thinner, a little bit smaller. They're not obtuse to store. They are very well built. The durability is fantastic. The uh, components are very excellent. So the keyboard is good. The screen is good doesn't have a 1080p screen. Most of them don't. Most of them have like a 1600 by 900 display, but it's good enough for most things. I find them to be a really solid laptop and you can easily pick them up for $100 or less on eBay. If you want one in very good condition that basically looks like new, you can get one for under $200 and they can do all of your day-to-day things. So if you're looking for a laptop and you don't know what else to get, the Lenovo T430S would be my suggestion. Every laptop, no matter what brand, no matter what operating system, no matter what the purpose, should have an encrypted hard drive. You can encrypt a hard drive on Mac OS, you can encrypt a hard drive on Windows, and you absolutely can encrypt a hard drive with Lux on Linux, and you should. The only problem that I have been able to dig through in Lux, which is what I use for all of my encryption, is that there is a watermarking hack. And to the best of my understanding, what that means is if you have a file and you want to determine if that file exists on the encrypted drive, there are processes you can engage in in which you can start to compare where data is broken up and stored on the drive, even though it's encrypted, and using a method uh, known as a watermarking attack, you can determine that that file exists on the hard drive without actually decrypting the data. My understanding, the limitation of that attack is you first have to know which file you suspect to be on the drive to begin with, and then you're able to search for it. And past that, I have not found any limitations or vulnerabilities uh, that have not been patched with Lux. If I'm wrong about that, send me an email, live at asknoahshow.com. I would love to bring more attention to it. The second thing, if you can arrange it, every laptop, no matter what its purpose, should be running some form of Linux. Why? Windows 10 is essentially a spy machine. The amount of telemetry that exists inside of Windows 10 all but ensures that every time you use that machine, you are going to be sending information to Microsoft. And if you're sending information to Microsoft, you may as well be sending it to the government because they essentially have access to a lot of that stuff as well. And so if if at all possible, I suggest running some form of Linux. Now, on a day-to-day machine... Ubuntu would just be fine. You can use any form of Linux. They're all going to be vastly superior to Microsoft Windows or Mac OS. You want to have GNU PG on there. Uh, GNU PG is a is kind of like your basic encryption uh, methodology. If you use nothing else, 
You can use GNU PG to encrypt uh, files, text documents, PDFs, individual files, and you can store them in a relatively safe manner. The other thing is I have been playing with CryFS, and the thing about CryFS is it has not been tested by an independent agency. And so one of the issues with uh, CryFS is that we don't know for sure that it is secure, but we also haven't found any vulnerabilities yet. So it's not a guarantee, but it will buy you some breathing room. And the nice thing about CryFS, particularly if you're using the KDE desktop environment, is they build it into their vaults system. And so you can click on the vaults system and you can uh, create a vault and store files inside of there. Now, Nunix points out in the chat room, he says the watermark thing seems to not really be an issue depending on how your drive is encrypted. Yeah, I my understanding is if you want to completely eliminate the watermarking attack, what you need to do is separate the header from the rest of the actual drive. So when you encrypt data, the key is what actually gives you access to the data. In the case of Lux, though, and it, and it is the case in a lot of encryption methods, the key is actually stored on the device, which isn't always really ideal, right? In a perfect world, you would always store the key separate from the device. That way, the key can be destroyed and the data becomes totally useless. But in the in the case of Lux, the key is stored on the drive header. And so when the computer boots up, it prompts you for a passphrase. Your passphrase unlocks the private key. The private key then unlocks the data. Um, and so my understanding is, and again, I'm open to correction, but my, my understanding is that if you separate the Lux uh, key header uh, and, the, and the, the header file from the rest of the drive and just contain the drive, then 100% of the drive is in fact encrypted and that watermarking uh, attack is is no longer uh, becomes viable, is my understanding. Again, I'm not a security expert. I don't claim to be one. Uh, I'm just a guy that's super interested in this stuff and, and tries to learn something as we kind of go along. Try and use CryFS. Uh, check out Siri, uh, what is it, uh, Siri Cali, which is a GUI utility for mounting and unmounting uh, CryFS and NCFS file systems right on your computer. And so you can open the vault up, you can drop something in, and you can close it. Now, if you have KDE, you don't need Siri Cali. You can just use the vault feature built in right into your toolbar. Also, PKCS 11 providers are fantastic. I have been recommending YubiKey again since episode one. I'll just underscore it here. If you really want true security, you need to invest in two-factor authentication, something you have and something you know. And in the case of the YubiKey, what it allows you to do is when you need access to remote servers, disable that password login and utilize the key infrastructure, the public key infrastructure, the PKCS 11 provider, to handle the authentication into the SSH server and then store that on your YubiKey. The nice thing about the YubiKey is it never actually gives up the private key. And so it's secure inside of that device. As long as you know you have that device, you know it hasn't been compromised. And because that private key is also secured with your PIN number, which nobody else but you will know, and the device stays on your person all the time, it's a very secure way to ensure that you can maintain remote access to other machines without letting an attacker have an advantage. Something you have and something you know. Every machine you have, if possible, should be secured with two-factor authentication. 855 Noah, that's one 855 The email, live at asknoahshow.com. Corey calls us from Texas. Hey, Corey, welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Hey, Noah. Um, I'm kind of got myself into a little bind. My current job is in 
barely paying me. And I've been debating about going to my local computer store, even uh, going into my local radio station. And there's a community station near me, and I'm thinking about volunteering or see what I can do and then try to get me a job there after I volunteer. But I don't know how to even get my foot into the station or sure. the computer store. Yeah, absolutely. So here's here's what I would tell you. What I would tell you is start with this. Giving a demo away of your services or skills is absolutely the right way to go, especially if you don't have a track record to, to point to, right? If you've done consulting in the past and you can point to it and say, hey, I've, I've worked on, with this client over here or I've done these things over there, that's absolutely something you should do because it will mean something to your employers, particularly in the IT world. We don't tend to care about hiring people that have the best education. We hire, we care about hiring the people that have the best skill set. And the way that we authenticate skill set is either through certifications and or through experience. And so what I would tell you is, yeah, walk into the radio station. I will tell you that right now, particularly in this day and age, technical people in radio is highly desired. All of the audio systems are moving to audio over IP. And so there's a massive demand for those kinds of things. And so I'd recommend you do. Go into that radio station. In fact, I invite you to send me an email live at asknoahshow.com. Send me the station's call letters. If I have any connections there with that radio station, I will do my best to see if I can set something up for you. But what you'll want to do is go into that radio station and tell them, hey, can I just come around and, and help out around here? Is there anything that you guys need some help? Uh, I do IT consulting. I'd be able to help you with this, that, or the other. What you'll find is they'll probably get told no right off the bat. And what you'll find is leave your contact information there. And the first time they have an emergency in the field or something like that comes up, they may just call you and say, hey, you know, you had offered to go come in and help us out. We've got a guy in the field. He can't get this Kodak connected or he can't get his laptop or whatever. Could you run out there and see if you could do something? And if you're able to prove yourself in that way, they absolutely probably would love to have you on their team. Like I said, finding people in radio that are technical people can be very difficult. And so it's something that's definitely needed. Great question, man. 855-450-NO, it's 855-450-6624. Let's talk about the normal communications laptop. To me, I see this as your day-to-day -day laptop, the thing that you use for Skype, the thing that you use for work, the thing that you download and listen to the Ask Noah show on, you visit web forms on, you browse Facebook and Twitter if you have them. For this laptop, I'd recommend something like Ubuntu, Fedora, Arch, something that is connected to the internet, stays connected to the internet, of course, you're going to try to keep the majority of your data local. You're always going to store that data on infrastructure that you own, whether that is you rent a VPS and you encrypt the data locally and store it there, or you set up your own NextCloud instance. It's all the data is still going to remain on your local LAN, on your local infrastructure, but it might be exposed to the internet for the purposes of convenience, right? It's encrypted and you accept that your data is partially at risk. It's at risk for intrusion. It's at risk for people re-encrypting it with some sort of malware. It's at risk, but it's convenient and it's available to you. You should run a password manager on this machine. Now, I prefer KeePassX. We've talked about a number of different password managers on this show. The ones that I've kind of settled on are KeePassX because it runs locally. It's easy to back up. It's encrypted. It's safe. It's not synced anywhere. You don't have to worry about any data breach. It's just a local piece of software that saves all your passwords. If you want synchronization, I recommend Bitwarden. The reason I recommend Bitwarden is because Bitwarden is self-hosted. And so you're able to either rent a VPS and host it there, 
or you're able to set your own up at home or you're able to run it on on uh, on their managed services, which is not self-hosted, but it will get you started. If you're one of those people that are coming over from something like LastPass and you say to yourself, self, I really need to have a password manager, but I also don't want to deal with the fact that I don't want to have to manage the server and keep up with the updates because that can be a security vulnerability in and of itself. If that's you, then I recommend you stick with the hosted version of Bitwarren, just pay them and they'll be happy to host it. It's still locally encrypted. And so your data is fairly safe, but you should be using a password manager. The largest reason that people get their data hacked today, most commonly is not through the NSA is not through some targeted bad actor. It's because some website didn't store their usernames and password in plain text or did some stupid thing and that data got leaked and now all of a sudden people have access to your accounts. So use a different password for every single site and store all of those passwords inside of a password manager. By the way, your password manager should be secured with two-factor authentication. Here's why. If the only thing your password manager is doing is taking all of your passwords and condensing them down with one password, If that password is ever broken, not only does the attacker have access to all of your passwords, they have a freaking directory listing of where to go to sign into all of your accounts. That's worse than having the same password on every site. At least with the same password on every site, you're relying on the attacker having to guess at where you might have other accounts. With a password manager, they're going to know. So you need to make absolutely sure that you pick a very strong passphrase and that you secure it with two-factor authentication. Encrypt your phone. This might sound like an obvious one, but you need to encrypt your phone. It doesn't matter if you have iOS. It doesn't matter if you have Android. It doesn't matter if you're like me and you're using Sailfish OS. You have to encrypt your phone. Now, both iOS and Android, in the wake of the documents that Snowden leaked, now support encryption. You should be using it. Sailfish obviously supports encryption. Lux on the SD card. And so... If you have a Sailfish OS device like I do, make sure that's encrypted. I also keep my Sailfish OS device offline as much as possible because the less likely, the less time it spends online, the less time there is for that threat and attack vector. And important to note about hard disk encryption, and this is something that I run into all the time in the field when I'm working with clients. People apparently don't understand exactly how disk encryption works. When disk encryption, when the computer is powered off and the disk is encrypted, the data is inaccessible. However, when the machine is running, in order for you not to have to type a password every time you want to open a file or open a folder or browser on your desktop, the encryption keys must be loaded into memory anytime the computer is running. And so if you encrypt your laptop and you don't shut it down all the way, anytime that laptop is running, even in standby, it's vulnerable to attacks because those keys are in memory. And so encryption is not doing anything for you at that point. Additionally, newer laptops come with direct access to the memory in the form of the PCI bus. So, for example, my Lenovo X1 Carbon here has a Thunderbolt port. And the Thunderbolt port has direct access to the PCI bus. That means that I have direct access to the memory. Now, there is an authentication model that occurs within Thunderbolt that tries to authenticate different devices that are plugged into it and let me say, yes, I want that device to have access. I don't want that device to have access. But the bottom line is you should not rely on whatever security vulnerabilities may or may not exist in that process. You should make sure that you have physical control of your laptop at all times that it has the encryption keys loaded into memory. I have a good friend that I deeply respect his technical ability and his technical know-how. 
and we were at a Linux conference together and we needed to use his laptop for something. And so he was using it. And I said, where's your laptop? And he goes, well, I left it on the table there. And I said, geez, man, you left your laptop sitting on the table. He goes, well, I shut the screen. Yeah. So you're relying on the screen lock to keep everybody from your data because it's trivial if I can pass the screen lock to get access to your data because it's no longer encrypted. It's terrifying to me. By the way, if you want more in, if you want more information on uh, you know, freeze attacks and, and, and cold boot and stuff like that, there is, a, there is a software package called Inception. We'll have a link for you in the show notes. And what Inception can do is you can plug into a PCI bus through Thunderbolt or otherwise, Firewire, and dump the contents of memory. In fact, there's even a technique in which you can take a cold um, substance like an air can turned upside down and spray the RAM and then remove the RAM chips from the computer and they will actually retain the memory for a couple of moments while you insert them into a new machine and then run software like Inception to dump the contents of the RAM out. Um, and so these are all attacks that are possible and you need to be aware of them because encryption is a powerful tool when used correctly. When used incorrectly, it's not going to do anything for you. Again, the phone lines remain open, 855-450-NOAH. It's 1-855-450-6624. The email, live at asknoahshow.com. George calls from New York. Hey, George, welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Hey, how's it going? Pretty good, man. How are you? Eh, pretty good. It's a little rainy in New York, but eh, you know, it's not snow. So, <laughs> uh, I, yeah, we don't. Yeah, we're uh, we're about to get terrible weather and dumped on here. So, uh, you go ahead and and stay with your weather. I envy it. How can I help tonight? Well, I was feeling like super nostalgic early, and I was thinking of the good old time when uh, Southeast Linux Fest was going on. Mm-hmm. And um, I have a question. If one wanted to volunteer, like what would what would I have to do to uh, volunteer for the next one? Um, there's a couple different ways to go about that, George. The the easiest thing to do is to join our Telegram group, uh, the the Southeast Linux Fest Telegram group, and uh, just post in there and say, "Hey, I'm interested in volunteering," because all of our staff are in that group, and so they would be able to reach out to you and say, "Hey, here's a need," and 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 so you know this is what what you could do. I will tell you, kind of getting to know you at Southeast Linux Fest last year a little bit, you have some AV skills, if I remember right. Yeah. More A than V, but okay. I'm trying to learn more V. Well, I tell you what, as the person who is in, in charge of AV for self, I would love to have you on my team, if nothing else. So that's something for you to kick around. But there's certainly there is, I know they need help on the network team. There's always a need for for, uh, for staffers, for helping people check in and, and do all those kinds of things. And, and like I say, I would absolutely love your help with media. So whatever you think would work best for you or whatever you're interested in, we would love to have you. But that's kind of the way to get that process started. Alternatively, if uh, for some reason you're not on Telegram or don't wish to use Telegram, you can certainly send me an email live at asknoahshow.com, and I would be happy to get your contact information over to the correct people. Well, I'm definitely on Telegram, and I'm going to join the group as soon as I can. Awesome. Thanks for the call, man. I appreciate it. one 450 noah That's 855-450-6624. The email, live at asknoahshow.com. So that's your normal laptop, the thing that you use from day to day and some thoughts you might want to consider as to how to set that up. Let's talk about a secure communications laptop. This is a laptop in which you don't ever reveal your true identity. The idea is to bring the Internet back to how it was in the 90s, where everything is truly anonymous. Now, I recommend something like Cubes OS here. You're not going to want 
a operating system, even a Linux distro that has ties into cloud services and has, you know, reporting features and stuff like that. You want something that is somewhat hardened. And there's a number of different OSs to choose from. To me, Cubes OS is one of the most, most exciting ones because it's utilizing virtualization technology to try to compartmentalize things. And, um, and so you can use that to, to, to send and receive your secure communications. And anytime you browse the web, you want to be doing it with Tor. If you're not familiar with Tor, Tor is a privacy-based web browser that connects to a network uh, and a special network specifically designed to preserve your, um, your anonymous identity. Tor is really ingenious in that the first node that you connect to has no idea what the source, or excuse me, what the destination address of your packets are. And once those packets are sent into the Tor network, now every other node knows what the destination of that packet is, but has no idea what the source is. And so it completely disconnects your request with the end result. And so it's a very secure way, the most secure way that we have available to us to browse the internet. And uh, there are some downsides. Obviously, uh, there is a, a substantial bit of lag that is going to occur. Also, because the Tor exit nodes are frequently populated by people who sometimes do bad things, sometimes do normal things, obviously, it's going to trip some additional security things. Anytime I try and pay with something when I'm connected to Tor uh, on PayPal, it throws a fit. Uh, anytime Signing into any sort of Google service is almost impossible, not that you should be doing that anyway. But the idea is anytime you browse the internet, do a tour on this machine and nothing that you do on this computer should be able to be traced back to you. So that means you don't sign into Facebook. You don't sign into Twitter. You don't sign into other accounts that are tied to you. And if you do, you start a, uh, you know, a new tour session, or I would just do that on my normal computer. The idea here again is to truly anonymize a person. And this was the computer that you would use for doing things like war driving or jumping on public networks or spoofing your MAC address or doing some of those fun things to further insulate yourself from a identity being tied back to you. And all communication to and from this system should be encrypted. And there's a number of different ways to do that. If you want an instant messaging style encryption, you should use a software called Signal. And Signal is the software package I've referred to over the past couple of weeks that it does a, is probably the best tool that we have at the moment for doing uh, instant messaging in an encrypted platform and calls in an encrypted platform, although that won't work on Linux at the moment. That only works on iOS and Linux, to the best of my understanding. You want to use encrypted email, and there's a number of different ways to go about doing that. Uh, the easiest way if you want the lowest common denominator is to use something like ProtonMail. Now, ProtonMail is going to allow you to sign up completely anonymous. They're not going to ask you for any phone numbers or verification or any of that nonsense. The flip side of ProtonMail is the only people that can receive encrypted emails from ProtonMail are other ProtonMail users. If you send an email to your boss, if you send an email to somebody at Gmail, it's not going to remain encrypted. And so there's a caveat but if you're all using ProtonMail or the people you're communicating with are using ProtonMail, it's going to be encrypted. Now, let's say, for example, you don't want to use a centralized network. Let's say Signal makes you nervous because it is centralized. And if Signal were to ever be compromised or the service were to ever be compromised or the service were to go down, you would lose your communication infrastructure. And so you're uncomfortable with it. Well, there are other options. Consider this for a moment. Remember Heartbleed. 
a attack in which memory could be sucked or data from memory could be sucked out by an attacker if they knew uh, which servers were vulnerable. This was a massive problem because, again, anytime you're dealing with encryption, if the keys are loaded into memory and there is a vulnerability that allows me to read memory where I shouldn't be able to read memory, that means theoretically I can read keys I shouldn't have access to. And indeed, the NSA probably got access to uh, at least uh, SSL certs. And so this is problematic. The data center stores all the uh, all the information that is collected off of the internet. And of course, by the data center, I'm referring to the data centers of the NSA. And they store all of that information, even if it's encrypted. Now, they can't read the information because it's encrypted. However, because we know faults like Heartbleed exist, and because we know that the NSA is searching for them, they may just get lucky. If you look at something that was encrypted back in the early 90s or in the late 80s, some of those, depending on what encryption algorithm you used and method you used, it would become trivial to break today. We called it wired equivalent privacy. The idea was it was just as secure as plugging in a cable, right? That was the sales pitch. Truth is, WEP is trivial to crack, absolutely trivial to crack. And so you don't want to maybe rely on sending all of your communications, even if they are encrypted over the Internet, if you don't absolutely have to. In those circumstances, you want to take your messages off the Internet altogether. Now, there's a couple ways you can do that. With email, you can send and receive encrypted emails, keep them encrypted, and only store the private key on your AirGap computer, which we'll get to in a moment, a computer that isn't connected to the Internet and never will be connected to the Internet. The other way that you can go about doing that is you can use something like XMMP with the OTR off-the-record plugin enabled and this will allow you to set up a signal like instant messaging service but a service that you host entirely by yourself and maintain uh, encryption end to end in this case even the encrypted traffic assuming that you're on your own network is not even passing through the internet and if it is passing through the internet you can utilize vpn technology to send the traffic directly from your machine over to your network and then from your network over to the client's computer or, your, you know, the other person that you're trying to communicate. In my case, it would be with my wife. But there are ways that you can set this up in such a way that your traffic doesn't necessarily have to go over the Internet. And some people might may choose to do that. The other thing that I would recommend you have on your secure communications laptop is GR security, which is a security enhancement to the Linux kernel itself that defends against a number of different security threats through access control and memory corruption and, and all of those things. The interesting thing about GR security is it's specifically designed again, like signal to add a level of security without increasing the inconvenience factor. And I think that's a really important thing for any of this to be adopted by the mainstream. 95% of people out there. In fact, I bet you half of you out there are not willing to carry around two laptops, much less three laptops, right? You have a laptop and you're going to get the work done. You'll do the best you can to be private on that laptop. Things like GR security assist in that realm. And finally, the air gap machine. Now, this is kind of a cool, this is where you start to feel cool and feel like a spy and feel like you have something to hide even if you don't. The air gap machine is a machine that has never been connected to the internet and will never be connected to the internet couple of things when building an air, air get machine. The first thing is you want to remove all of the hardware wireless interfaces that you can. 
increasingly it's becoming more and more difficult to do that because a lot of these chips are soldered onto the board. But in the case of the 430S anyway, if you open up the bottom of that computer and you don't even have to take it all the way apart, you can get to the Wi-Fi card, the Bluetooth card, uh, just on that back panel. There's a little dedicated slot that I guess comes off. And inside of there is the RAM and the wireless device. And so ideally you would pull those out. Here's something else to consider. When I download a distro, very rarely do I run the MD5 checksum and make sure that I have downloaded the correct distro and all that stuff. I'll find out when that I have a bad ISO when I install it and it doesn't work. I don't have time to check every single ISO I download. Frequently, I also carry that stuff with me on little flash drives, and so I'm usually pretty con- pretty convinced that they're going to work. In the case of a air gap machine, you will want to use the verification method to ensure the integrity of the ISO in which you're going to install. Because if an attacker was able to slip you a compromised ISO and compromise the machine before you ever installed it, your air gap machine isn't particularly great. Now, again, if you're removing all of the hardware, it's not going to do them much good to compromise the machine if they don't have any actual remote access to it because they can't turn on the Wi-Fi because there is no Wi-Fi. They can't turn on the Bluetooth because there is no Bluetooth. You physically remove those chips from the board. The other thing you want to do, prefer an amnesiac operating system, something that forgets everything that you've done. And a great example of that would be something like Tails. Tails is an operating system that is specifically designed to run off of removable media. In fact, it's so designed to run off of removable media, I tried to install it to a hard disk because I just, I want the amnesiac features but I didn't want to have to continually plug this drive in and out. Plus, it's slow, and so I would prefer to run off off the drive. And it gives you a warning and says, hey, I'm only designed to be installed on removable media. Now, for a machine that I was just using to, to test and prep for the show and do those kinds of things, I didn't actually really care about security. And so what I did was I just DD'd the image to the drive. Now, is that secure? I don't know. You'd have to ask somebody with more security expertise than I would. My thought is, if... It's designed to be secure on a removable media like a flash drive. Why wouldn't I just be able to use a bigger version of a flash drive like an SSD that has uh, greater speed and connects right to the PCI bus rather than over the USB bus? I feel like that's probably an okay thing to do as long as you're still letting the amnesiatic functions take place, but I don't know for sure. The computing environment in something like Tails is dynamic, and that can take a little bit to get used to, right? If you watch the documentary Citizen 4, uh, inside of it, one of the things that Glenn Greenwald does is he sets his password to like something of like eight characters, and Edward Snowden kind of makes fun of him and says, <laughs> you really should pick a longer root password. And Glenn Greenwald's response is, well, I have to reset it every single time. Does it really matter? And of course, the answer to that is yes, because if somebody were to break down the door and you immediately slam the lid shut... You want that very strong root password to try to buy you some time until the battery dies and the memory you know, wipes or until you can disconnect it or whatever it is your next step is. But that buys you time. Stronger passwords buy you time. But it can take a little bit to get used to the fact that it's just a dynamic computing environment, that your background is, all, is never going to be the same or is never going to be what you want it to be, that you're not going to be able to spend the time tweaking all the toolbars and stuff like that the way that you would want them. As I'm kind of doing this and kind of getting in the habit of doing some of these things, I'm also noticing simple things like extensions I have in Firefox that turn the web dark so that it's easier for me to browse at night and more pleasurable for me to browse the internet at night are not available 
And so it's it takes a little bit to get used to the d- dynamic working environment. But if you can get used to it, it's very useful to understand that the computer just becomes a tool to read and work with the data that you're working with. And as soon as you power back off, that entire environment just vanishes. All the data is stored on an encrypted drive. The computer doesn't store any data at all, so you don't have to worry about it. And the final thing is you should only be using a dynamic computing environment like Tails on your own machine because machines themselves can be compromised. The hardware in machines can be compromised. And if the hardware in machines is compromised, like, for example, a hardware keylogger that could be embedded inside of a laptop, it's going to entirely eliminate the purpose of booting into Tails and typing this massive encryption password and massive encryption passphrase underneath a blanket. It doesn't make any sense. You should just, it won't get you anything because they're going to capture the password with this hardware keylogger. So you want to make sure that you're using devices that you keep track of and that you understand and that you can keep an eye on. Now, here's where this gets a little dicey. I'm going to wager to guess that the vast majority of you are not hip to the idea of keeping your laptop on your person 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. And I know there's about five of you in the chat room at Ask Noah, Pound Ask Noah Show in Freenode that are about to go, I keep my laptop with me 24-7. You keep your laptop with you 24-7. I've watched you take it into a gas station, Noah. Yes, yes. I'm that guy that tries to keep my laptop with me all the time. But if you're not that person, Edward Snowden has an answer for you. And the answer is Haven Keepwatch. Haven Keepwatch is an Android and iOS app that turns a spare Android phone into a surveillance system. Its primary focus is to prevent an attack called the mate attack. And the mate attack is this. The NSA or a bad actor pretends to be a mate at a hotel because that's frequently where people leave their laptops unattended and it's easy enough to gain access to a, a hotel room. They break in, they open the laptop up, they install a keylogger, or whatever, and they close it back up. That would be an example of a mate attack. What Haven does is it uses the phone's microphone, the accelerometer, the barometer, the camera, uh, and, and uses all of those sensors to detect if anybody has messed with your stuff. So you may take your AirGap laptop and power it down completely so the drive is encrypted and remove the drive. I would probably keep that with me at all times, no matter what. And you place this spare Android phone that has Haven KeepWatch installed on it and fire the app up and just set it on top of the laptop. If anybody tries to move the laptop, touch the laptop, boot the laptop up, heck, if they just even come into the room and stand over the laptop, Haven is going to detect that microphone sounds. It's going to detect that visual change. It's going to detect that motion, and it's going to take pictures and or audio recordings of the attacker in progress. So you'll know not to enter your encryption password into that device now that you can't trust it because somebody has tampered with it. It's an absolutely fantastic app and an absolutely fantastic idea for people who want to be able to keep an eye on this stuff. Now, there are a couple of different ways that you can recover the Haven log. The first way is, of course, you can log back into the phone and you can look at it. But let's say, just for the sake of argument, that the attacker discovered that you were running Haven and compromised the phone as well. Well, Haven has the ability to send a message over signal and or text to your phone so that you know immediately that your laptop has been tampered with. So even if they were able to gain access to the Android phone and erase the Haven log, you would still know that something had been done to your laptop and that you're under attack or threat and so you should not do this. 
Nunix in the chat room says an easier low-tech solution is coat the screws with clear nail polish. The other thing I've seen is uh, glitter. I've heard of people putting laptops inside of safes and then sprinkling glitter, taking a picture of the exact pattern of the glitter. And if that pattern changes at all, then you know that the laptop has been has been tampered with. But I do like the nail, uh, the um, the the uh, screws with the clear nail polish, although one could argue that I could strip off the nail polish, take out the screws, put the device back in and then put the clear nail polish back on over the screws. Right. Um, the nice thing about Haven is it is active security. So that is kind of where I break down. And again, I am taking some of these things from Snowden's book. I'm taking some of these things from interviews that he has done, as well as just common things that I have run into at security conferences and or Linux conferences, because there are tons of people out there that are paying attention to these things and trying to work on making them better. In fact, one of those people is Bo Weaver, and we've had him on the show a couple of times to talk about security. I talked with him today and we are going to be launching what we're calling the security minute. And the security minute is going to be just a couple of moments every week with Bo, where he gives you a tip and trick on how to stay private and keep the NSA's hands off of your stuff and eyes. I might add 855 Noah. That's one 855 The email live at ask I want to close out with this story. This is from gnome.org. There is a patent troll and a patent troll is somebody who is interested of, instead of making something, they just buy the patent to something that already exists, and then they fight people in court to try to get money out of people that are, quote-unquote, infringing on their patent, right? One of the things that, even though I'm a free market guy, is I believe that software and intellectual rights belong to everybody who works with them. And so if you sell me something, fine. But just like I can buy a desk, and I can take that desk apart, and I can turn it into a full-on workstation, and then I might use you as my quote-unquote supplier and build bigger and better versions of my workstation and then sell them, that does not mean I violated your patent on your desk. In the same way, if I buy a piece of software, I should be able to use that piece of software for as long as I want. I should be able to modify that software if I want, and that's why I advocate for open source and open source code. And The Gnome Foundation feels under attack right now because these patent trolls are coming after uh, Shotwell, I think, is specifically the the piece of software that's being targeted. And they're trying to defend against this. And what the Gnome Foundation is doing is essentially saying they're taking one step further of just saying, no, we're not going to pay them off. We're not going to uh, capitulate to them. We are going to actively fight them and let them know that this is not okay. That you can't come to open source projects and try to steamroll them because they don't have the money to begin with and they don't have the resources to begin with. And so we cannot continue to have these fights over and over again. So this has to stop here and now. And so they're going to take it to the mat this time and they need help. They need money and they need help. And so I'm doing two things. The first thing is I've donated money and I have talked to other friends that have donated money. And I've talked to I I was just talking to Ryan uh, Das Geek earlier today. He has donated money. And so we're encouraging everybody else to donate. And I don't mind using my platform to officially endorse this and saying, hey, I think you need to go out there and support the Gnome Foundation, because if you believe in free software and you want it to continue, believe me, this is not just supporting the developer. It's making sure they don't have to pay out of their pocket to give you free software. This is beyond paying for their development. We are now at the point where... Other entities are trying to get money out of people that have written software to give away for free, and it's beyond infuriating. So please go to gnome.org. Please go to podcast.asknoahshow.com. 
gnomefoundation.com. Click on the show notes and find how you can donate to the Gnome Foundation and help fight these patent trolls and keep them at bay so that they learn that we're not an easy target. We're not somebody to be picked on. We're someone to be left alone. Hey, if you enjoyed the episode, I invite you to go to podcast.asknoahshow.com. There you'll find all of the articles and references that we use to create the show. We never have time to get through all of them. So if you're not going to podcast.asknoahshow.com, you're not getting the full show. There's plenty of more content for you there. Also, we invite you to visit asknoahshow.com. Follow us on Twitter at asknoahshow. That's how you'll get the latest updates. This episode of the show may be over. There's plenty more content for you at asknoahshow.com. We'll see you back here next Tuesday. Tuesday.